comfortable. It's quite a long reading. I'll read the first half, starting um, chapter 5, verse 1, Esther. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out his gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that, his, that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh's wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the way the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. That night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who had guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, the attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done to the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour, have him bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let, the robe and, let them robe the man and the king delights to honour and let him lead the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what the Lord has done for the man the king delights in. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. 
Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Continuing from 6 verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realising that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Thanks for reading, Annie and Andor. A long passage uh, this morning, but I think we need to see the story of Esther to really understand what's going on. Uh, let me add my welcome to Jacks. My name's Carl. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church Unley. Thank you for joining with us today. We're up to week three in a series that's going for four weeks looking at the book of Esther. If you haven't done this yet, I'd, I'd recommend that you try and find uh, a half hour or 45 minutes at some time in the week to sit down and read the story from start to finish. It's a, it's a wonderfully gripping story with lots of irony and lots of humour in it. Um, it's overall the story about the potential annihilation of the Jewish people and yet, as dark as that is, it's also one of the most humorous books in the Bible. So I'd encourage you to, to go away and read it in its entirety. 
the big idea for you today, the big thing that I'd love you to take away from this passage is, is really very simple. It's this. We are not in control, but God is. That's a big idea. It's simple. We are not in control, God is. I'd love you to go away today remembering that, if nothing else, from these chapters in the middle of the book of Esther. Now, it is a story, and because it's a story, we really do need to understand what's going on in this story. So if you're joining us just for the first week this week, let me kind of try and fill you in on what's been happening in the book of Esther. It's a story that's set uh, about 500 years before Jesus lived on earth. It's set in the Persian Empire, which at the time was the superpower of the day. The Persian Empire stretched from the east through to the west. Uh, it's kind of the entirety of the known world at the time. In Esther, in the book of Esther, we meet the king of Persia at the time. His name is King Xerxes. We've seen him to be a, a very wealthy king and Persia to be a wealthy nation. But we've also seen that the king's a bit, a bit flaky. He's a, a, able to be manipulated uh, and his advisors seem to push him around. He's also uh, not potentially the wisest of kings. He makes rash decisions when he's drunk. It's important for you to know that before the Persians ruled the world, the Babylonians were in charge. And during the time of the Babylonians, they defeated Israel, they ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and they deported many of the Jewish people into the land of Babylon, into modern-day Iran and Iraq. When the Persians came to power, they allowed the Jews to return back to Israel. Many of them did, and they started to rebuild the temple in the time that this story is written. Uh, but not all of the Jews returned to Israel. Two such examples are in our story, Esther and Mordecai. They're not living in Israel, but they are Jewish. Instead, they're living in the Persian city of Susa. There's one more character that you need to get your head around this morning, and his name is Haman. After King Xerxes, he's the second most important person in the world. He's the second most important pers person in Persia. And it's important that you know that he's a descendant of King Agag, who was an Amalekite king, which means he has a long-running history of hatred towards the Jewish people. Last week we saw that was probably the source of the hatred between Mordecai and Haman. And this seems to be why Mordecai's bent not just on killing, uh, sorry, why Haman's not just bent on killing Mordecai, but trying to wipe out the entire Jewish people. Last week we saw Esther as the queen uh, resolved to become a mediator for God's people and she said that she would go to the king whether she perished or not. Now today we've read a lot of, the lot of text. Thank you again Bible readers for taking us through those words. We're not going to go over every word today, I can assure you of that. You might be very thankful for that. R rather we're just going to look at three things today. Those, those three things are in your leaflet. The first of those is I want us to see what has become a theme for the book of Esther, and that is, I want us to see the providential work of God in this story. And we see this really clearly at the start of chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible, please turn with me to Esther chapter 6. I think it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Here's how Esther chapter 6 starts off. It says this, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. 
It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. In the book of Esther, one of the things you need to know is that God is never mentioned by name, never in the whole book, but it seems like God is just behind the surface of the text, almost everywhere you look. We've seen this already in the way in which Queen Vashti, the queen before Esther, refused to perform on one particular night for the king. We've seen that of all the virgins the king could have chosen, he chose Esther. You might wonder, why was, why was Mordecai at the gate listening and overhearing that conversation to kill the king? Why was he there at that one particular time? Well, last week we saw dice being rolled and we saw that playing out in the Jews being given the most amount of time before their annihilation. And here, the night before Haman is planning to kill Mordecai, the king can't sleep. And we're supposed to ask, I think, is this coincidence? And as we read through the book of Esther, we've got to conclude, no, it's not coincidence. Rather, God is alive. And he's active, and he's at work, and he's in control. Who rules the universe at this time? Is it King Xerxes? Is it Haman? Is he the one who's really in control? And the answer we keep coming up with as we read through this story is no. No, he's not in control. And so you might wonder, is it the US president who's in control today? Is it the Chinese president who's in control? Is it NATO who's in control of our world? Who's ruling the place today? Here in the book of Esther, we see God rules and God is in control. Now remember, this is, is King Xerxes. He's the most powerful person in the known world at the time and he's having trouble sleeping now no doubt you've all had a similar experience at some point in your life you've had trouble going to sleep what do you do when you can't sleep perhaps you get up out of bed and you go make yourself a cup of tea i reckon that for most of us at some point in that process we uh, turn to a book to start to read or maybe in our modern day world you you put your headphones in and you start listening to an audio book and when you do that do you choose the the most gripping of the audiobooks that you've got in your library? Do you turn to the most intense one? Well, not if you want to go to sleep, do you? You choose one that you know well or a story that's really boring. You choose a story that's likely to put you to sleep. And so what does King Xerxes do? Or what does our author tell us? Well, the king chooses to have the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign read. Surely here, this is our author being a bit cute. A boring read. Let's get the king listening to what he's done in his life. Hopefully that'll put him to sleep. Can you see the humour in this story? And yet as the chronicles are read, as the, the record of the king's life is read to him, Xerxes is reminded of Mordecai and how Mordecai saved the king from an assassination attempt. A moment of sleeplessness here leads the king to wanting to honour Mordecai. And all this is happening when the second most powerful person in the kingdom has decided to kill Mordecai. Indeed, he's already built a pole to impale Mordecai. It's a huge pole. It says it's 50 cubits high. That is kind of translated today to being about 23 meters tall. 
a pole stretching up into the heights. I know many of you have been wondering in the last few weeks, how does it even work, impaling a person 23 metres up in the sky? I don't know, but it's grotesque, whatever happens, right? Haman is now in the king's palace, he's in the court, and he's come to speak about impaling Mordecai on this pole he's built for him at the very moment when King Xerxes is looking to honour Mordecai. And the way this plays out, there's no doubt, is there, the author wants us to see God at work. God's not working, he's not working through the booming voice of a prophet or through a miraculous event of healing or through a powerful natural event like an earthquake or a storm or something like that. No, rather we see God providentially at work, controlling the normal events of life. A king not being out of sleep, a book being read, a set of dice being rolled, conversations being overheard. This is a really clear example, isn't it, of the way in which God works in our world today. And that's the first thing I want you to see from the passage that we've read today. The second thing I want us to take a look at is the state of the heart of this man, Haman. In our reading today, we're given a pretty interesting insight, a perspective into what Haman is like. Remember, he's the antagonist in the story, he's the villain, and yet our author takes us in the text right into his home. We're given an insight into the conversation he has with, it, with his wife. Uh, we're taken right into his mind. You might say his heart's on view for us to see. We see this, I think, quite clearly in a, in a couple of different places in the reading that was brought to us this morning. Uh, come with me to chapter 5, verse 10. If you've got your Bibles there, I think it might come from the screen as well. At this stage in the story, Haman's been asked to join the king and Queen Esther for a banquet. For Haman, life must seem pretty good at this point in time. There's only one problem, that's the, the pesky Mordecai. Let me read to you from verse 10 of chapter 5. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. And this suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Now, as I read these words, I, I read about a man who, who pretty much gets what he wants in life. He seems to have money and wealth and all the sons he wants and all the honour he would like, and even all the power. He, he's so powerful that, with the exception of just the king, he, he almost gets to decide if people live and die. Mordecai is annoying him, and so Haman thinks, let's put him to death. Where's his mind at, do you think? Who does he think's in control? Who's ruling Persia, according to Haman? I reckon he thinks he is. He's in control. Even when things go a little bit wrong, like having a person refuse to bow down, he can sort it out. He's a fixer. 
Now, sure, there's a king above him, but we've already seen this king can be manipulated and controlled, and, and it looks like Haman knows that. And so he thinks he's in control. Now, come back with me to chapter 6. Uh, we looked at this just before, chapter 6, verse 6. The king had not been sleeping, and Haman comes to the king. And this is what we get to in verse 6 of chapter 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honour. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. It, the irony is so, so apparent here, isn't it? This is one of the great reversal stories in the Bible. It's supposed to be ironic and it's supposed to be humorous. Uh, we, we've seen that multiple times already in this story. But this particular passage also gives us a window into Haman's heart. How does his heart beat? What does Haman's heart think? Who is there that the king would rather honour than me? That's what he's thinking. His heart beats like that because he wants some of the king's glory. He says, let me wear the king's robe and ride his horse and and have his most trusted staff and and let all the people honour me as though I was the king. I think we see here a heart that's full of pride and full of hubris. I wonder if you've been reading this story over the last few weeks, like I've encouraged you to do, who do you find yourself identifying with in the story? Do you do that as you read a story? Do you find yourself identifying with a particular person? Maybe you found yourself identifying with Esther and, and her courage. She goes to the king saying, if I perish, I perish. Or maybe you're more a kind of wise and crafty person. Maybe you see yourself kind of aligning with Mordecai in the story. And as I read the story, I'd love to have the courage of Esther. I'd love to have the wisdom of Mordecai. But but as I read this story, I I can't help feeling that Haman and I have a fair bit in common. And don't get me wrong here. I'm not set on annihilation or murder or anything like that. That's not the bit that we have in common. But our hearts. See, I think most of us, if not all of us, Pride and hubris and and even to an extent arrogance are are just a bit about what we're like as people. Too often, at least for myself, I'm proud in a way that puts me out of step with God's own heart. In Australia, we're pretty good, aren't we, at at kind of dealing with pride in that sort of really overt way. We're good at reducing people down when they get too big for their boots. But that doesn't mean that we don't suffer from pride. I reckon we just become good at hiding it and not displaying it. I think there's a diagnostic question in this passage for each of us. It's this, who is there the king would rather honour? What does your heart say? Maybe for you it's about 
intellect or workplace status or athletic ability or, or political astuteness? Do you know better than everybody else? I mean, you never say it out, right, out loud, right? But deep down, are you a faster and more competent worker than everybody around you? Or do you have real insight into how the world works? Have you got things figured? We don't need to be the loudest or the most extroverted person to be the proudest person. Pride is a state of our heart, isn't it? And hearts like this, they often end up in the same place and that's thinking that they're in control. Haman was legitimately the second most powerful person in the Persian Empire. He had money and he had wealth and he had sons and he had honour and that led him to thinking he was in control. And you can't really blame him in a way. The king we've seen is, is kind of a pushover and Haman seems pretty cunning. He probably thought he had things all worked out. And that's what makes Esther such a great story, isn't it? It's the twist in the story. It's the reversal that comes next. Now, we've seen that with Mike's kids' talk today. This is a story about reversals. Our reading today, we see it's wonderfully funny, and yet it's very serious as well. This is about Haman's fate. It's Haman's adversary that ends up being, being given the honour that he thought was coming to him. And Haman suffers the indignity of leading his enemy Mordecai through the city streets. And shockingly, it's Haman who ends up impaled on that pole. 23 metres up in the air. And as readers, we've got perspective of hindsight, don't we? We can look back and see Haman's folly and his hubris and we can kind of laugh at him thinking he was never really in control. God was always in control. He was there at every stage in the plot. Even his wife knew that. But it's not so easy for Haman to see it in the present. You see the big idea, though, that's running through these, these chapters. God is in control. Not Haman, despite him thinking he is. I think we can apply it to us today as well. God is in control today, not us. I think it's a good thing for us to remember because we live in a part of Adelaide that's beautiful. It's a delight to live here. I think most of us choose to live here. We probably wouldn't live anywhere else. And, and for most of us, we can pay our bills and, and, and you know, we've got things sorted. Success at work, family well, house in order. And that's great, and we should give thanks to God for that. But the temptation when that's like that, isn't it, is to think we're in control. And the story of Esther is that God is in control, not Haman, not us. And if we really think God's in control, what does that mean for us? How does that change the way you do things? If God's really in control, does it change the way in which you make decisions in life? Here's Christopher Ash, who's a commentator that I've been enjoying reading as I've been working through the book of Esther. This is what he says, speaking about decisions. He says, in every decision I make, I need to know and remember who rules the universe. Will I tell the complete truth? Remember who rules the universe. Will I be sexually pure? Remember who rules the universe. Will I forgive? Remember who rules the universe. Will I entrust my career, my family, my marriage, my health to the one who judges justly? Remember who rules the universe. Remember the man the king delights to honour. Here he's speaking about Jesus. He is seated at the right hand of God. 
I think it's really helpful for us to think through. How do we make decisions? Remember who rules the universe. And so I wonder, how do we protect ourselves from forgetting these things? How, how, do, we, how do we go about seeking to dethrone ourselves where we think we rule? And how do we go about dethroning ourselves and, and reinstituting God as our rightful ruler in our minds and in our hearts? I'd love you to think about this, this, that this week. How do you dethrone yourself and rightly enthrone God in the way in which your heart works? Here are a few ideas that I've been thinking of this week. The first is that I reckon it's helpful if we keep giving God the credit that he's owed. And we can do this by remembering the story of Esther, by seeing the way in God works to preserve his people. The real hero in this story is not Esther or not Mordecai, but God who preserves his people. We need to boast in God, not in ourselves. And uh, we see a reminder of this in 1 Corinthians uh, with Paul speaking. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read to you a little section from there. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see here, like another one of those biblical reversal ideas. See Paul speaking here about... Um, the foolish things shaming the wise, the weak things shaming the strong. We see a similar thing in Esther. Why does Paul say this happens? I think so that we're left with no other choice but to say things like, God chose me, I didn't choose him. God saved me, I didn't save myself. And so this leads us, Paul says, to boasting in God's work in our life. In practice, I might imagine us thanking God often and repetitively for the things that he gives us, for the homes that we have, for the workplace that we went to work in, for our families. He's the one who provides. I think it'll mean speaking to others, not about our achievements as though we did them on our own, but boasting in God's goodness and kindness and grace to us first idea second idea i wonder is if um, we should think about how we speak and the language we use uh, i uh, was pointed to a, a section in, the, in james chapter 4 i've got that on the screen as well Just let me read this to you from verse 13 of james chapter 4 now listen you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city spend a year there carry on business and make money why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow what is your life you are a mist that appears for a little while and then and then vanishes Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And what James is saying is, when we speak about our plans, do we acknowledge God's sovereign and providential care? Do we acknowledge that he's the one who rules? Now, of course, we, we need to be careful not to be pedantic here, don't we? I mean, I don't think James is encouraging us to say things like, Honey, I'm just going out to get some milk from the shop. I'll be back in five minutes, if it's the Lord's will. Like, I don't think it 
needs to go to that extent, does it? Of course, we're allowed to shorten our speech down at times, but, but James is reminding us that what we say, how we speak, affects what we believe and know to be true. We see in Esther that God is providentially at work, even in the role of a dice. And so I think it's a good thing to think about how we speak, acknowledging that our God is a God who rules. One more example in the last minute or so that I have with you that might help us uh, dethrone ourselves and enthrone God, and another great example of reversal in the Bible. I reckon in the story of Esther, Haman is looking to be great. That's what he's seeking to achieve, greatness in Persia. He wants to be as great as the king. In the New Testament, Jesus shows us what true greatness looks like. And he says greatness comes through being a servant. In Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 10, some of the disciples have been arguing about who will be the greatest in in glory. It's a great passage. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called them, that's the disciples, together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is probably the great reversal story in the Bible, isn't it? Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And so Jesus, fully God, became a man in order to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here's what John Piper says. He says, we need a servant who dies for us, who sustains us. God serves you every day in your life with with heartbeat and breath and food and a rising sun and rain and the Holy Spirit to enable you to do what you need to do and lavish forgiveness. You are being served all day long, every day, by one from whom you deserve nothing. How this should affect us all to be servants. We've seen today that God is in control in the book of Esther. Not us, not Haman. We've seen this illustrated in one of the great reversal stories in the Bible. And yet, as amazing as the reversal of Haman and Mordecai is, it's nothing really in comparison to the reversal we see with Jesus, who was fully God and yet came to serve us and did it by giving his life as a ransom for many. I hope the story of Esther reminds you that God is in control, but also helps us to remember how much our God has served us in and through the person of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us that we would uh, give God the honour and the glory that he deserves uh, and that uh, he would be at work in our hearts. Can you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this story of Esther. We thank you uh, for what we have learned about Haman's heart and about your providential work in the world. We thank you that you're a God who's in control because we know you to be good and just and merciful. 
We thank you so much for the great reversal stories that we see in the Bible of the lowly being lifted up, the poor being made rich. And we thank you mostly for your son, Jesus, who rightly deserves all honour and praise, who became a servant for our sake. Amen.